Oh, I guess I have no objects to fiddle with. I should have. Here, you can fiddle with this. This is kind of fiddling. Oh, great. Um, we'll do like wow, a... Got knobs. With that out of the way, let's welcome everybody to this episode of Lucky Paper Radio. My name is Andy, and I'm here as always with my co-host, Anthony. Lucker Paper... Lucky great, pa- great start already. Lucky Paper Radio domestic correspondent, Maddox. Tuning in from the kitchen. Uh... <laughs> You know, I, I never write down your nicknames, and that was what messed me up, is that I actually wrote it down this time, and okay. trying to read it was harder for me than just That makes sense. Just that makes it. sense. What did I do that was particularly domestic? I, I like just I... meant that I was in Europe, and now I'm, not, and now I'm back in America, oh, and you've stayed in America okay. the whole time. I like, see. I that see. kind of domestic. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I did that wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I thought you were doing a reference to... Neighborhood Listen, then. When you right. Said that's you what it kitchen. started turning into as well, but then I, I just thought you meant, like, I've been... Cooking and cleaning, which is stuff I'm... I feel like for a dude in his mid-30s, I'm pretty good at those kinds of things. Yeah, you're like an expert <laughs> at cooking and cleaning. I think for anybody. You okay, know, great. I'll any, take it. I'll any take demographic. It. I had a nice time in Anthony. <laughs> Jesus. This is what I get for recording the end of wow. the workday. How was Switzerland and I, Italy? I had a lovely time in Switzerland, Andy. Wow, what the heck? Jesus, are am you I, okay? Am I really okay? I had a, a lovely pause? time in Switzerland, Anthony. My trip can be summed up, I think, by one little anecdote. So, like a year ago, Hillary and I decided we needed a little stone wall in the back of our yard. And Hillary and I are different in how we approach these kinds of things, in that she is normal and healthy with a normal brain. And she's like, we need a thing. Let's just simply go get it done. And I'm like, it has to be done perfectly. I'm just like a perfectionist. I have to, like, optimize every decision. And so it pained me to know that, like, if we hired somebody to build this wall, it probably wouldn't be perfect. But also, I didn't have time to, like, do it myself. It was going to be, like, a huge undertaking. So I, like, swallowed my pride and just said, all right, we'll hire someone to do this. And sure enough, the stone wall is, like, eh, pretty mid. I would describe it as a mid stone wall. Mm -hmm. Not a big stone wall. It's, like, you know, a 16 feet long, 3 feet high small wall. But the quality of the construction, not up to my standards. I was in Lugano, Switzerland, in the Ticino region along a beautiful lake. And in this part of Switzerland, all of the curbs are made out of beautiful granite slabs. All of these like little granite slabs along the curbs, along the side of the roads. And I was just walking around exploring the city as I want to do when I'm traveling internationally. And I spy a team of two road workers. And what they are doing is one of these little granite slabs has like a four-inch chip out of the corner. And they have other granite blocks. And they're carving them down by hand with little chisels to make a piece that fits exactly in that available space on the curb to like patch this spot. And I was just struck by the fact that I literally can't pay people in the United States mm-hmm. any amount of money to build a stone wall that is nice. And then you go to Switzerland. And that's what they do to their public sidewalks. There is an expectation of quality that is non-existent in this country. Yeah. So anyway, that's how my trip to Switzerland was, Anthony. But <laughs> no more digressions. Everything was beautiful, and you were staring at the literal curbs like, what the heck? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No more digressions, though, because we have a very important guest on this episode. We are joined by a prolific magic writer, one of the hosts of the new podcast, The Herald's Horn, and I would say the undisputed Cube Queen of England. It's Emma Partlow. Emma, welcome to the show. Hello, everyone. How are we doing today? I'm good. I read your title correctly even though i messed up anthony's and messed up our name four or five times so maybe my brain is coming back online which would be good for for everybody on this episode thank you for joining us yeah thanks for having me it's a long time coming um it's always it's always great to talk about keep 
Yeah, I was trying to figure out if I could make a fun nickname, because you, your primary cube is a peasant cube, and I'm not sure if you have other cubes, we'll get into that, but I was trying to come up with a nickname for you that had to do with being the cube queen and also peasants and somehow playing with that in that space, but you I, I, I couldn't the, do it. could have gone with the UK correspondent, actually sort of made this like a little bit of a theme, had a tie-in, a little structure there. Okay, well, you do it <laughs> next time, buddy. <laughs> Let's just do it. Let's talk about Cube, Emma. For those of our listeners that don't know you, and I think most of them probably will, how did you first get introduced to the game of Magic? Um, so it started nearly 10 years ago now, which sounds like a really, really long time. So it was around 2014. So before Magic, I was really into Warhammer, like Warhammer 40k, like the tabletop miniatures, nice. you know, plastic models and painting and stuff. And a lot of my friends who played Warhammer had a casual interest in magic and they would always bring it up in conversation I'm like what's this magic game I've never heard of it so through just hanging with them like their hobby shifted from Warhammer to magic so I kind of followed out of curiosity and at this point Khans of Tarkir was coming out which was my first magic set as a magic player and for you know curiosity's sake and just wanting to see what it's about I went to a Kansataki pre-release and it was then that I opened these cards and had a good time I remember vividly playing a Ponyback Brigade if you remember what that card does oh absolutely for sure yeah you're talking to Ponyback Brigade enjoyers here because in Kansataki pre-release you picked a like a, a Khan basically like one of the three colors and you would get a promo of within that color and all your packs would be seeded in a way where you can build a deck from one of those cards. Um, so I picked Mardu and I just remember having like a load of Ponyback Brigades and I remember <laughs> the time I unmorphed a Ponyback Brigade and made a bunch of goblins and I just went, this is really sweet. I want to keep doing this. This is fun. <laughs> and 10 years later, I'm still here. That's so great. I, I was listening to an episode of Playing With Power recently and the two hosts were describing how they got into the game, which was actually relatively recently. It made me feel like an old head and uh, we've been playing for I guess <laughs> seven or eight years now which I never felt like I had been in the game for particularly long but they're much more new to the game and they both had these very clear memories just like you do of like this one thing happened and I knew I was hooked I don't have that do you have that Anthony of like a thing that happened when you first started playing the game where you were like this is my game now I mean it was probably like the first time I played a white main line and realized oh this is actually an upside I can actually uh, make this do stuff that was pretty cool. That's very on brand. But I you. feel like it had to be sooner than that, because that probably wasn't until some master set or something. I'll think about that. All right, good. You think about but that. But I was actually listening to the same episode, and it is interesting. I feel like I've heard more and more that, you know, we, we sort of think of, like, I'm a magic player, this is my hobby, but that's not the case for a lot of people. Like you're saying, you went from Warhammer to magic, and I feel like I've been hearing about more and more people that have kind of woven through a lot of these different hobbies that are in some ways related, in some ways they're different. You know, Warhammer has the miniatures that are, like, fun to paint, so that's maybe a little bit more of a, a vis tactile fun but they do still have that element of strategy that definitely makes sense that that it would sort of pull you between them and also it's nerd stuff and it's nerd stuff <laughs> it's, yeah it's, it's nerd stuff that's the common thread so you got into magic 10 years ago fast forward now it is your full-time job it's been your full-time job for a minute when did you actually find out about cube so i found out about cube 
just around the time Twitch was kicking off and Magic Arena was a thing. You know, there was that point where no one knew about Twitch and then the next day everyone knew about it and everyone was streaming on it. I don't know if that happened for you, but that happened for me. It, it, it like, did what kind is of feel this that Twitch way. thing? I remember <laughs> Twitch Plays Pokemon was my introduction to it or when I first heard I about it. I can watch people do things. What is this? Radio for like the 21st century? So when Twitch became a thing and, you know, Magic Arena really kicked off and there was a like a subset of players such as LSV and Caleb who would stream Vintage Cube on Magic Online. I think that I think Vintage Cube is most of our first sort of exposure to Cube. For sure. You know, whether whether that's playing it on Magic Online or in real life or watching people play it on Magic Online, I think that is a pretty uh, like first experience of Cube. And I was like, this is sweet. Like having this curated box of cards that you can play with over and over again just sounded really fun. To me, Cube feels a lot like a build your own board game where you're putting the pieces together, creating this thing that it could be an aspect of magic you like or a particular design or a particular color, whatever. And it's just like, yep, I'm just going to make this board game full of existing pieces and people are going to have fun with it. And that just is a really cool thing for me considering how big magic is and how, you know, we have things like Commander and you have all these competitive constructive formats. You're known today for your peasant cube. Was that your first cube, or did you dabble in other cubes before landing on the peasant space? The peasant cube is was my first or is my first cube. That came around during the pandemic when lockdowns were happening and we were all very bored and couldn't really do much because obviously there was a pandemic going on. Before this point, I've always wanted to build a cube, but it's just one of those things that just gets put to the side because life happens. And you're like, oh yeah, I'll get to this eventually. And it might be like five years later, but you get the idea. So when the pandemic happened and lockdown was a thing, and I wasn't working at this time because I... So in the UK, we had this thing where you were paid to stay at home. Uh, The government would pay you through your employer. So I took... You got paid 80% of your salary, so you took a 20% pay cut, but you also didn't go outside to catch COVID. So I figured it was a good trade. So at this point, I was at home a lot, bored a lot, because, you know, that's how it was. So I thought, oh, you know, I can start thinking about, you know, building that cube that I've been thinking about for the last two, three years. My starting point for that cube was to look at Eric Klug's uh, peasant cube. If you're not, if you're familiar with Eric Klug, who's mm-hmm. a fantastic card altruist, does some amazing work. But he also has a peasant cube, and his cube is considered like one of the, like the better baseline entry peasant cubes. Um, so I just took that as like a as a groundwork, and then over time I slowly upgraded it, and I had the whole thing built after lockdowns were finished, and then we could play it in in capacity which is cool you've done obviously a ton of writing and you've been on a couple magic podcasts over the years and i feel like there's kind of a theme to a lot of your work which is like accessibility you talk a lot about you know rarity restricted formats you talk a lot about budget restrictions and how to you know play magic within a budget how did that become a focus of yours in the magic world like what interests you about that space so it comes from my own background, to be honest. I'm not someone that came from a 
comfortable background nor you know like well off or anything like that so the idea of having disposable income for a hobby was kind of foreign to me at this point like especially when I came into an adult where I had like a well-paying full-time job it's like cool I have money to spend on things what is this right sort of thing and also for a while I worked at an LGS so when I was working at this LGS, I would hear a lot of background conversations, people going, oh, I need to be careful on this because, you know, this is a bit too expensive. I'll buy this version. That's a budget version. Or, you know, people are very money conscious when it comes to magic because it is an expensive hobby. I know that coming from Warhammer, it's, it's an expensive hobby and we all have like a budget and a limit. So the idea of talking about accessibility is that we all have different backgrounds. We all have different finances. We all have different ways of approaching the hobby and I think it's just important to have some empathy and understanding that not everyone's going to come from the same background as you so just being considerate I think goes a long way in general and you know one thing about peasant cube is that you can build it very cheap you can build my peasant cube very cheap if you cut like five cards I have a budget version of my peasant cube on cube cobra for a for reference was it really the the budget that led you to peasant initially or just finding Eric Klug's list that you were a fan of? Like, what exactly was it about peasant that drew you into the cube world? So at this point, I was also playing a lot of pauper. And as someone that's on, now on the pauper format panel, I really liked the idea of having stuff like commons and uncommons that were really powerful and often misunderstood because when we generically look at magic as like the cards and like what they do, we tend to focus on the rares and mythic rares. And while that's all well and good because they are intended to sell the packs that, you know, wizards put together. I just think it's really, really neat that you can have a pile of commas and uncommas and they can do well, you know, they are powerful within their own right. And one of the reasons I wanted to build a peasant cube was to show people that you can have a really fun time with commons and uncommons. You don't have to play these showstopper rares and mythics all the time. With the way magic design has gone in the last five years, I think, you know, peasant cube is in a really, really good place. Yeah, I mean, that's a cool parallel between these rarity-restricted constructed formats and Cube. They both are kind of these unique closed ecosystems where cards that, like you're saying, if you if you have access to everything, you as a player are just going to want the most powerful things. But if you get the chance to operate in one of these closed ecosystems, anything can become the, the coolest, most powerful, most relevant card. I mean, when you made that shift from thinking about constructed formats to Cube, was it really about like focusing on those same sets of cards that, that worked in those constructed formats that you wanted to see in a Cube environment? Yeah, and I also enjoyed a lot of Limited at my early sort of time in Magic. And with Peasant Cube, I figured it was a really fun way to highlight some of the mythic uncommon cards that you get in Limited formats. It's just good to give them another purpose because a lot of them don't see Constructor play or Pauper play or whatever. So it's just nice to have this time capsule of like, hey, here's a bunch of really cool commons and uncommons. You may remember some of these cards from old limited formats. You know, let's have a good time. There's some nostalgia attached to that to some people because like, oh, I played this in like Ravnica Cities of Guild draft way back when. And I think it's a really good way just to, you know, teach people about the cards because Magic players, they come from all kinds of backgrounds. They enter Magic at various times. So it's just cool to show you. It's like, yeah, at one point this card was like busted in like XYZ limited format. 
it's a good way for storytelling. That's a great way to sort of pull on these less obvious pieces of nostalgia. I know that I'm in a similar space with my main cube where a lot of the cards that were sort of benchmark cards were things that I just really enjoyed drafting with in whatever limited formats mm. when I was new to the game. And it was cool to just sort of be able to draft them again. And as I've done a lot of cube exploration, I've dug back into older sets because, <laughs> you know, I've been playing for not even as long as you, not nearly. But it's really fun to see, you know, here's this old card I put in a cube and somebody opens up a pack and is like, oh my god, I remember drafting this in Nemesis or in Odyssey and this was yeah. a, a and super you're like, cool, cool thing. I don't. <laughs> I, don't, I don't, but it's like I, it's an opportunity to sort of share that nostalgia, which is a lot of fun. Yeah, I feel like those mythic uncommon or those, you know, really powerful cards in Retail Limited have some of like the steepest drop off in terms of their like public perception. Like when that yeah. is the limited set, they're talked about constantly, right? Like it's like a, it's like the bugbear of the format is the I, I don't even have a modern pull for this because I haven't been playing Retail Limited in the past four or five years. But, you know, I still remember back in the days of, like, you know, Amonkhet was like Gust Walker. Gust Walker, was like, never you know, forget. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you don't forget, you know, Gust Walker or whatever. Every set's got a couple of those. And then as soon as that set is not being drafted anymore, that card has literally no home, right? It's, like, just relegated to the uh, absolute chaff bin of history. So really cool to get a place to highlight those in cubes of all kinds. Yeah, and another interesting thing about Peasant Cube and Pauper Cube that is something that you know, your traditional, like, powered, unrestricted cubes get access to is that peasant and pauper cube becomes more powerful depending on downshifts. We have the tool of seeing downshifts in, like, master sets or in modern or in modern horizon sets, and it's like, cool, this card's been downshifted to, like, an uncommon. Does it go in my cube? Commander Masters was a really, really good example of this. There was, like, a dozen really fantastic cards that were once rare that could demoted to uncommon and it's like cool how do these play out in a peasant cube environment and it's really fun to experiment was it just a dozen i feel like i, I played a draft that had almost a dozen of them at CubeCon, and it was just like ooh, gaunti lord of luxury i'm this is <laughs> amazing to luxury see is much cheaper now <laughs> yeah i think i added about a dozen cards from commander masters and i think most of those were downshifts it's great because it just adds another level of power. And don't get me wrong, Gonti is a really strong card. And it's a card that people like know of more recently, thanks to Commander. And, you know, it was it's all playing standard at one point. And it's like, oh, cool, Gonti, that's a really, really sweet card. I'm going to draft around this card because, you know, nostalgia. I just want to recapture that excitement players have for these older cards that are sometimes forgotten. I think Gonti does actually kind of have uncommon vibes, to be fair. Like, if it wasn't legendary, yeah. it's just Elvish Visionary that draws off your opponent's deck. Sure, it's a <laughs> classic classic one-for-one. One. I feel like the thing that is not No, it's also a creature. It's a two-for-one. That's that's what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm just making sure that Classic off-by-one sure error here. <laughs> uh, but the interacting with an opponent's library is kind of like a rare feeling thing. But, I mean, yeah, from a play perspective, if you're with a bunch of cube players, nobody's going to have an issue with that. Just a Drifter baby. All right, so Emma, yeah. what are the cards you most want to see downshifted? I mean, I, I think, Anthony, I don't think about rarity that much, honestly, in our cube designs, for better or worse. So it's not a thing that's really on my radar. I don't even really keep track of when cards get downshifted. But as someone that is focused on that for a variety of reasons, what are the cards you most want to see downshifted for your cube or other reasons? So this was a really good question, and I had to ponder on this for a while because I normally think about downshifts to common and not uncommon. So it was really nice to think about that rarity for a change. So I've got two that I would really like. One is more likely than the other. So the more likely one is Amara, Soul of the Accord, which is the green-white 
legendary from Guilds of Ravnica, where if you tap it, you make a token, or whenever it becomes tapped, yeah. you create a token. I think that's really that plays into a really cool space because I've always found Selesnya to be a bit mopey in in my cube. It 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 doesn't really do much, but Amara is like a really cool token generator. It has a good body, and there's some really interesting like tap on tap synergies you can do with it. Love to crew a vehicle with Amara. Oh yeah. Yeah, like crew to vehicle, you know, attacking. Uh, I've got like Convoke. survivors encampment in the cube. So if you tap Amara for the, with the survivors encampment, you get to make a mana of each color, of any color, but you also get to make a token. There's some like neat little synergies there. The other one that I would really, really like, which is never going to happen, but I can <laughs> dream, are the pathway lands. Pathway lands. So is that a, a cycle yeah. you're particularly fond of? Yeah. So I really like the pathway lands because the problem with pauper and peasant cube is there aren't any good untapped dual colored lands in in those formats because wizards like to push all like the lands at rare because that's the way it sells packs I, i get that but it would just be really cool to have a cycle of lands that are uncommon and i think the pathways are a really cool one because you have to make a choice on like which color you want and it's not strictly a duel but it just gives you the decision it's like cool do i want to flip this for one color or the other plus there's some cool synergy you can do with bounce land so you can bounce the pathway back to your hand and then replay it with the other side if you need that color i haven't played much with pathways in cube in terms of their power level how do you think they compare to like any other potentially untapped land cycle like the fast lands or whatever i think they're slightly weaker like things like painlands would be i think it w- would be too good in peasant cube because it also taps for colorless right um i think stuff like fastlands obviously shocklands would be too good another one that i considered was some of the manlands like the old like celestial colonnade that kind of thing but i think they would be a little too good um but no i just think pathways are just clean it gives you flexibility and it just forces you into this into a decision like i have to play this for one of the colors i can't choose both and I think that's an interesting interesting thing to consider um, when designing cube. Yeah, I haven't really thought about rarity when it comes to lands a lot, but th- there is a much more stark cutoff than I realized. You know, there, oh, there are steep. quite a, a few cutoff. options at common and uncommon, especially some of these recent ones that, you know, you get a expensive scry effect or something like that, but they all enter the battlefield tapped and you don't have any of the really, like, interest, from my perspective, more more complex, uh, like, late game relevance like the creature lands. So, yeah, I mean, that's an interesting yeah. space to, to think about exploring. And I, I wouldn't be surprised because we do still see a bunch more lands, even if we don't see reprints. I wouldn't be surprised to see more different, more powerful lands at Uncommon. Right, this is it. And something I discovered earlier that I posted on Twitter is the original, like, reveal lands from Shadows Over Innistrad. Mm-hmm. You know, the ones that if you reveal, like, a basic land, uh, basic land, it comes in untapped. Those are actually downshifted to uncommon on Arena. So that is Ooh, something I'm going to consider to see if I want to put them in Peasant Cube. I've not considered Arena downshifts as part of my cube, but that could be an avenue to go down. I need to think about it. But those could be really good because them coming in tapped is fine because tap duels are fine in Peasant Cube. But also it just gives you the opportunity that if you have, you know, the right land type in your hand, you can play it untapped, which makes aggro decks a little better as well. Aggro can be, like two color aggro decks can struggle in pauper and peasant cues just because the land base is a little cumbersome. Yeah, I feel like the mana fixing in constructed pauper is one of the like the biggest 
forces on the meta of the format because Agreed. you have like a lot of <laughs> legacy staples of access to you. You can play Lightning Bolt, you can play Brainstorm or whatever, but you just have to play like the dinkiest, crappiest tap dual lands imaginable, basically, which really changes the pool of viable decks. And that, that similar thing could definitely happen in a cube that's strictly following that rarity restriction. Yeah, I, like someone was like, just add the rare lands to your cube. And it's like, you don't get it. It's a peasant cube. I want to keep it peasant. To me, I want to keep, I'm a, I'm a bit of a purist, so I will keep things, you know, as intended. If people want to add rare lands to a peasant cube, they can do. I get why. But it's like, I'm confident at some point we will get some reasonably good uh, uncommon dual lands at some point. I might be waiting a while, but they'll come at some point. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely one of those that would make such a suggestion, but it makes a lot more sense when you're coming to it from this perspective of it, it does sort of shape a constructed meta and you want to translate some of that sort of experience and that some like familiar experience to a cube environment. And if you make a big change like that, it's not going to have the same impact. For sure. Yeah, I respect the commitment to the rarity restriction. You mentioned that a big point of why your cube is the way it is is because you want to show people that you can play these great uncommons and still have fun, competitive, you know, dynamic games of magic. You don't have to play with the most powerful cards. And that yeah. being tied up in the identity of the cube, the naming of the cube is, I think, a very powerful thing. I mean, Anthony's cube, I think, is often described as kind of like a peasant cube with rares because your mentality, Anthony, is very much similar around playing those cards that are renowned from their limited formats but maybe don't shine in any constructed formats. But that is so much harder to communicate. It really is. It's so hard to communicate that when you're like, yeah, these are just the cards that I like. And they're, you know, instead of just having a hard rule where it's like, right. people know when you say it's a peasant cube, this is what you're playing with. When you say it's the regular cube, people, well, I, just, because of your, just because of your fame, Anthony, people are starting to know. But mostly people don't have any idea what we are talking about. And so there's a, there's a commitment to that restriction that I think goes a long way to help communicating what the cube is about. I mean, yeah, it honestly also makes it a lot more accessible in the sense of people will who have some familiarity with the different formats of magic will understand what it's about. We had a great question from a listener, which I, I think is really interesting. They wanted to know what you think is the most uncommon card, which sounds like a silly question, but it's basically like if you take all of the traits of quintessential uncommon cards, like, you know, what, what are the like identifiable traits of peasant magic of cards that are printed and uncommon for you? This is a really good question, and I'm not going to cheat when I give my answer, because I wrote it on your end-of-year review, but the answer's still the same. And that's Woodland Acolyte from Wilds of Eldraine. So Woodland Acolyte is a 3-mana 2-2, so it's a 2 and a white. Uh, when it ETBs, it, it draws a card, but it also has a, a venture side for 1 green where you put target permanent from your graveyard on top of your library. That design is just really clean and elegant, but it's also nice that casual magic players can read the card and understand how to play with it. It's like, cool, I can either be a white deck or I could be a green deck and just play this green side or I can be a bit of both. It's like, cool, I can put like my biggest threat from the graveyard back on top and then draw it and they get to play it again. You kind of see the cogs turning when they read this card. and I just think it's a really simple, clean design. And it's also not complex, which is something that I strive to have in my cube because I want people from all backgrounds to play it and not all players are well-versed in design and nuance of mechanics. So just having something clean and simple is just really nice. It's, it's my favorite card from printed last year. I think it's really nice. So it sounds like really it's about like clarity of design and simplicity. Those are like the hallmarks of, a, like, un, of uncommonness to you. 
yeah, I just want someone to look at it, look at a card and go, yeah, I get it. I understand what this does. You know, I get, I can play this in the way it reads, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. I think a lot of people might conflate power level with rarity a little bit much. I mean, obviously, there is certainly a bar where if a card does too much, it does become, you know, pushed up by power level to higher levels of rarity. But, you know, I have a very powerful Eternal Cube that plays plenty of commons and uncommons because it's actually more about, like you said, the simplicity of the card, right? Like, really complex things, your planeswalkers, well, ignore War of the Spark for a second. <laughs> Magic is long, it then did everything <laughs> at some point, but you know, things like planeswalkers or cards with, you know, 20 lines of rules text or whatever, those are the ones that really get pushed to rare and mythic, and to be an uncommon, yeah. you just kind of have to, yeah, be a card that is going to be a role player in retail limited and hopefully not make the game state too impossibly confusing. Yeah, and I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's more than just simplicity in the strictest sense. It's about having sort of a clear narrative that people can latch onto in terms of what the actual mechanics of the card are. So, yeah, you have your three mana 2-2 that draws you a card. That's pretty understandable. And then you have this extra component that lets you turn it into a gravedigger. Plus then, even beyond that, there because these abilities are sort of uh, split up, allow you a lot more flexibility that there is kind of a, a sort of series of steps to understanding what this card can do, but they are fairly easy steps to make that sort of lead somebody into thinking yeah. about how they're going to play the card. Yeah, I'm a big fan of adventure as a mechanic. I think it's probably one of my favorite mechanics printed in the last five years. Five, I love six it too. Years. It's just really neat. I like the idea of putting two spells on one card. It's really weird. I can't actually describe why I love Adventure so much because it is kind of just like some weird combination of like flashback and split cards, right? It's yeah. just got this really like very specific thing where it's a split card, but if you want to play both sides, you have to play them in a specific order or you could just play the other side. It's like it's it if you described it to me without me actually seeing the cards and playing with it, I would have guessed it'd be a mechanic I wouldn't like that much and I've just turned out to to really love it. I think maybe a part of it also is that because one side of uh, adventure is well, it used to be always a creature. Now we have a couple that are on enchantments and stuff in uh, in a more recent set. But almost all the adventure threats are attached to creatures, which means that you're getting some effect and also a body, which it has a lot of inherent yeah. flexibility in it. And like it means that you're going to have to care about combat and care about power and toughness, but also something else is happening on that adventure side, which makes it more than just about the creatures in play. So great mechanic. You have some. I would say controversial cards in your uh, in your peasant cube, which uh, a listener did <laughs> ask us to ask you about. Uh, basically, there's a couple cards that are like really pushed in terms of power level while still being technically at peasant. And the ones pointed out to us by this listener were Mother of Runes, Demonic Tutor, Strip Mine. How did you come to include these really powerful cards in your peasant cube? So Eric Klug had these cards also in their peasant cube. I decided to keep them in because I think it's really cool to have some iconic cards in in the cube, like cards that people can open and go, wow, Demonic Tutor is an uncommon, like I did not know this sort of thing. That sort of innate surprise is a really cool thing for people to experience because that's like emotion and emotion brings on memories. And plus Demonic Tutor, yes, Demonic Tutor is a strong card, but Personally, I like those cards in my cube. I don't think they're breaking, like game-breaking in a particular way. Sure, I can get stuff like Wastelanders strip mine because we have bounce lands and it never feels great for someone to strip mine your bounce land or whatever. But I think, going back to an earlier point, I think we'll get to a point where there will be some good uncommon dual lands 
for peasant that I think having strip mine and wasteland will be justified. But I also think with wasteland and strip mine, there aren't many ways to repeatedly play these cards in my cube. And if you if you do, it's a very long process. It's not like you have a Ren and Six that can just keep bringing it back. So it's not like you're going to be completely wastelanded out of the game. It's just, it's, in most cases, is a one-time use. Yeah, I think there is a lot of focus in the cube design world on, you know, balance and thinking about the, like, game design you're designing and the game pieces included, focusing specifically on, like, the resulting decks and the gameplay between them. But you're talking a lot about the value and the impact of a card on the draft and the broader... Yeah experience of the whole experience of drafting and playing the cube and i do think that you know there's a a feeling you get from opening a demonic tutor and a peasant cube that you couldn't replicate with a different card you couldn't replicate with a less powerful card or a card that you know didn't sort of fill that role and so while it might not be the most balanced in terms of like oh yeah everybody's got access to the exact same power level of cards it has this like really valuable impact on the draft that changes how people interact with with the environment Sure. I kind of see it as the Peasant Cube's Power 9, if that makes sense. In sure, that yeah. you get You get really excited. It's like, oh my god, I opened like a Mox Sapphire, a Black Lotus, I'm going to slam this. I think stuff like Demonic Tutor, Strip Mine, uh, Wasteland, Force of Will, and Sylvan Library are in that conversation because there are people going, wow, this isn't uncommon. This card's really powerful. I'm going to take this. And sure, you know they're going to be powerful, but these cards independently won't win you the game just as much as like a Black Lotus in a Vintage Cube may not win you the game. I think you have to get a Library of Alexandria for this cube. That's that's my request. I've had so much fun playing with that card. <laughs> yeah, in our speaking local of the budget friendly and you want you want to buy me one? Or? <laughs> yeah, you got to set up like an Amazon wish list. Maybe somebody out there's got deep pockets and we'll we'll throw a library at you. But that's got to be one of my favorite uncommons of all time. It's so good. Also, sure. oh, I remember listening to Mark Rosewater interview Richard Garfield. And I got to say, whenever Mark Rosewater interviews Richard Garfield about magic, Richard Garfield sounds like such a Chad because he doesn't know what any of the magic cards do. <laughs> it's true. Like, he, he, like, designed all these cards 25, 30 years ago and then just hasn't thought about it since, apparently, which is, like, such a power play. So he he's was, like, yeah, a library. I guess I guess that feels like a land. We probably made that a land. Yeah, and then he's, like, he was trying to remember which of the lands in Arabian Nights also tap for mana, and he's like, well, we wouldn't make library tap for mana. And Mark was like, actually, you did. And it's like, <laughs> he just, you know, it's a classic thing where that card just does so much. It's, it's really good. Okay, so this was just a listener question, but I, I feel compelled to tack my own my own individual card question onto this. How does Sprout Swarm sure. play here, and how... Why is it still here? <laughs> I really like the card. It's really powerful, but not everyone realizes how powerful it is until they lose to it. Mm-hmm. Talk about Sounds a mythic about right. limited card, right? Yeah, I mean, did yeah. that card essentially dominate what Future Sight was when it was first printed? Yeah, and they talked about putting, or Time Spiral, they talked about putting it back into Time Spiral Remastered, and they first had it at Common, and then they put it at Uncommon, <laughs> and then put rare, rare, and they were like, we can't make this mythic, <laughs> we're just cutting it. But no, there's a couple of cards in the cube that, certain groups of magic players will get that this is a really powerful card but you'd be surprised how many people don't realize stuff like sprout swarm and crystal shard are actually really strong cards until they lose to it and then they take it next next time they draft it's like i lost to this i'm not this is not happening again i'm just gonna pack one pick one from this sprout swarm which is a reasonable thing to do because the card is messed up yeah i mean in some ways that's a similar sort of clear narrative in terms of the experience people are having where if they're new 
they see the card, it looks kind of innocuous, but then there's like a clear level up moment. And next time it's it's not like, oh, well, I need to get this balance of removal versus threats exactly right. And it's going to be really ambiguous to what I need to do differently in the next draft. It's like a very clear message, you know, if this card, yeah. if your opponent has this, make sure you have a counter spell or have the right way to answer it. Or if you have an opportunity to draft it, make it work. Another one that people sleep on quite a bit is Centaur Glade, which is an enchantment. Uh, so it's a five mana green enchantment. Uh, you pay four mana to make a free free green centaur token. That feels really innocuous and like, eh, that seems fine. But it can easily snowball a game and it can just take over. And it is also one of those cards that you, you will lose to. And then you're like, I'm not going to let this happen again. I'm going to take the Centaur Glade because it just it's just able to accrue so many tokens across various turns and creatures are very important for the cube. It's a very permanent focus cube. So having threats, having a way to stream threats is really important. Okay, I had honestly had the same reaction when I looked at this card earlier today, but now I'm just thinking about it as what if I always have Call of the Herd in my graveyard? Would I enjoy that? Absolutely. It's also like pretty <laughs> close to Sprout Swarm. Like Sprout Swarm, yeah. the first one is five mana make a one one, and this is what nine mana make a three three, and then it's cheaper. You had me at nine expensive. mana make a three three. Yeah, I don't know. Sprout Swarm is such a cool card. I, I I'm sympathetic to including Sprout Swarm. I don't know. It's kind of cool to have a cube where you are, you know, teaching people these lessons that they may not have learned from retail sets they never got to draft. Where you know, if you open up a pack in a vintage cube, most players are going to know that like Oko is broken or whatever. But like you said, mm. a lot of really good, experienced, seasoned players might not know that you know, a card like Sprout Swarm can really dominate a game. And also, when you, or at least for me, when I fire my cube, I get a lot of, like, hyper-casuals playing the cube, so people that come from a commander background. And I'm just trying to be accommodating for all different kinds of backgrounds when it comes to Magic players who have may have never seen these cards before, but it's an experience for them. And sure, we all know Sprout Swarm is a very messed up card, but it just... As, you said earlier it's just a really good lesson for you know less enfranchised players to take something away from it yeah in a way you're kind of bottling that experience that time spiral yeah. limited gave people about sprout swarm and you're putting a little couple drops of that in your cube which is a it's a cool way to like build a history of magic from the perspective that you care to showcase yeah i always think cube as a time capsule so you mentioned that you play with some less enfranchised players or people that maybe don't know the full history of magic you built this cube over the pandemic, which I think is pretty common. I think a lot of people maybe got more invested in cube over the pandemic because cube, one of its great advantages is that it's one of the formats of magic you can just think the most about without playing and be very satisfied. Yeah. So yeah, I, think I designed at least six cubes <laughs> in the first uh, six months of the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, so you can spend a lot of time alone being like, yes, I'm doing my hobby, and you're just thinking really hard about magic cards. So I think it's a pretty common experience. Did you have a, an existing playgroup before the pandemic that you then brought the cube to after the pandemic? Like, what is your local playgroup like? How often do you get to play your cube and with what kind of players? When I built the cube and after the pandemic and things seemed to normalize, I took it down to my old LGS. So I've moved to another part of England since then. So I, I brought it to uh, my LGS at the time and they're all very experienced players. They're very competitive. The store has like a proxy vintage cube, which fires regularly because people love vintage cube. I mean, who doesn't, right? Um, well, you're talking to the so, podcast of people that might be <laughs> the, the least no, but loving of a like, vintage cube of, uh, of all cube like, podcasts. Generically speaking, if, some, if someone said, do you want a vintage cube? 
nine times out of ten, your enfranchised magic player is just going to go, yeah, sure, no why doubt. not? No doubt, you're absolutely They've right. had these experience on Magic Online. And that was the same at my LGS. Admittedly, it was really hard to fire my Peasant Cube because a lot of people saw it as, it's not Vintage Cube, so why should I play this? I'm not going to be able to play with the Power 9 or do these really cool things. And it's like, well, just give it a go and then you'll you'll find out what is there to lose because you're not paying entry. If you don't like it, you can just drop. But I, I like telling you this is going to be a good time. So it took me a while to like convince people that Peasant Cube was fun, you know, because when you're... F- combating against vintage cube in a store environment it can be quite tough but eventually i managed to you know get a regular eight firing uh, like once a month which was pretty fun and at my uh, new lgs because i moved across england they're a lot more casual the lgs is much more uh, commander focused but we tend to like me and my friends tend to hang out every week and sometimes we play Pioneer, sometimes we play Pauper, sometimes we fire my cube. One of the people who work at the LGS has their own peasant cube as well, which we play with, which is much different to mine. And I think our plan, once I'm back from Chicago, because there's a Magic Con coming up soon, we're going to crack open my box of cards of Tarkir that I've had sealed for the last nine years, and we're going to do some cards drafts. Throwback to your, your earliest set. I literally bought a box and I was like, this is just, I'm going to crack this at some point and have some fun because I really enjoyed the set. My current play group's a lot more amenable to playing things. They're not super serious or super spiky. So if I was to say in our little Discord group, who wants to cube, I would get eight for it. And that's pretty great. Yeah, I've, we've definitely heard from listeners that deal with the same kind of attitude you're describing of people where it's like, oh, it's cube, but it's not vintage cube. Why would I do a cube that's right. not vintage cube? It's like less than, which it's such a hard thing to like, have to deal with it's frustrating because i get magic online i'm gonna put vintage cube up because i get some the most traction and the most you know money and attention or whatever but i just wish they would take a break and like bring back legacy cube or modern cube just just something else to compare it to too because it's like okay well then why draft murders at karloff manor it's not vintage cube why go to a movie in a movie theater it's not vintage cube right like it's it's such a weird like bar to hold things to and on top of the fact that, you know, I think the play patterns of a lot of non-vintage cubes are actually some of the best play patterns, regardless of... Uh, I say, so my take is that Legacy Cube is better than Vintage Cube. There's a hot one. I find it a lot more enjoyable. And I think part of that is because there was less Legacy Cube. So I enjoyed it for, you know, during that time instead of Vintage Cube, which has come back like three or four times in the last six months with different iterations as well, because there's just so many cards coming out. I just think it's really cool to play with really powerful cards that aren't the power nine, but that's my take. Uh, I know yeah. it's not a popular one, but I, I would love to see like a revision to the Legacy Cube and put on Magic Online. Yeah, I feel like I'm well and truly in wild speculation territory, but for a long time, they ran the Vintage Cube, what, like twice a year? It was like it was in the summer and then the initially. Holiday Cube was, was basically... Just, I think it was just holidays initially. Uh, well, it's, it, for when I got into it, you know, watching things on YouTube like That was the best ago. part about Christmas was having right. two weeks off work and then just playing Vintage Cube because that was the only time it was good. <laughs> I, I, I feel like what happened is like a lot of people were like, oh, why can't we Vintage Cube all the time? Like it's the best format. Why we only get it like once or two times a year? And now we get it a lot, and I feel like we're seeing exactly why they limited it before, because yeah. there absolutely is, like, uh, I, I mean, I think playing with power is really cool every once in a while, and it's the kind of thing that is inherently very, like, people often think of 
powerful cards mapping directly to like spiky cards or cards that spikes like. Yeah. But power is pure, Timmy, right? Like, there's no like the fact that you're drafting an environment <laughs> with power and the player sitting next to you who may be way less skilled or whatever is just going to take a black lotus and stomp you with it. That appeals to Timmy's, not to, to spikes or whatever. And so, well, it sort of has a like level one spikiness of if you just are brand new to magic and you look at a mox, you're like, well, this is just another land. This doesn't do something cool. I want a shivan dragon because it's a big dragon. That's very brand new to magic. But yeah, sure, maybe. Then again, it's just really hard to beat the appeal of a black lotus. Yeah, I mean, which I think to it's got the best branding to for both sure. your points. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is like really <laughs> an aesthetic appeal more than it is a. I want the like maximum spiky strategic engagement, and you can have the same strategic engagement. Like this is something I go on about much too much, but with a popper cube with this set of cards, there's still something like you're saying. There still is something that is like the power nine of this cube, and it is a much bigger investment to look at the list and sit down and sort of get your bearings and coming from a new baseline. Whereas if you're playing with the most powerful cards in the history of all of Magic you can use all of the existing knowledge you have and just say, like, yep, that's the yeah. most powerful card. I don't need to reevaluate, like, well, is Mox Opal going to be better here because there's, you know, whatever context. It's just the best cards. I definitely have seen players of the Turbo Cube be as excited to pack one, pick one at Guild Globe as I think anybody's ever been to pack one, pick it one at Black It takes some time Lotus. to get there, but... <laughs> on, on their second draft. On their second, second draft, draft specifically. Uh, they're very excited about that. You mentioned that you went from a LGS that was more competitive to an LGS that's more casual. How do you relate to those terms? Do you think of yourself as a casual player or a competitive player or neither or both? Now, like me as a Magic player now, I would consider myself a lot more casual. But at the point when I was settled into Magic and playing for like two or three years at this point, I did consider myself competitive and I was like grinding the PPTQ circuit back that's what when it was called back trying to like go to that ptqs and go on pro tours and stuff like i had a glimpse of like yeah i'm competitive because i just had the time at this point but since now you know magic's my full-time job i spend a lot of time looking thinking and you know eating magic basically i don't have the time to be competitive however if magic wasn't my full-time job i wouldn't be surprised if i still had you know the competitive fire to you know try and get on the pro tour or whatever but i'm happy being casual you know cube is a really good way to keep things casual combined with like the op schedule is a little bit loose it's really hard to as much as i would want to be competitive the op system's not built in a way to make that sustainable so i think eventually i would be casual but i'm happy with where i am now because it means i get to play cube I rarely play Commander, and I get to play all these weird and wonderful formats, you know, like Battlebox and Dandan and stuff like that. I think one of your best articles, at least that I've read, and I certainly haven't read all of them because you produce a lot of articles, but one of my favorites of yours is your article about the variations in cards now that we get, the different frame treatments, the different card treatments, and how that introduces accessibility issues into the game and how Magic has been perhaps prioritizing collectability over accessibility in recent years. As a cube curator, how do you choose prints or choose, you know, versions of cards for your cube? How does that actually influence your card choices? As someone that curates a cube and acknowledges that people from different backgrounds and, you know, different experiences with magic 
I like my cube to be as legible as possible, visually accessible as possible. So I tend to avoid like the really, you know, showstopper secret layer variants, like the random borderless ones with all the words like all over the place. Those do not go in my cube just mm -hmm. because that just adds another layer of complexity to something that could be com already complex to someone new, new to cube, especially peasant cube. So it's all in English. There are some like secret layer printings, but they use the traditional frame. An example being the Fatal Push that has the Yago art, because I really like the art on that. Um, but anything like super fancy, you know, like the high-end collectible, illegible stuff just does not go in my cube, just because I think it defeats the point of getting people into cube. And I want people to have a good time. And if people are like, struggling to read a card i feel like i've failed as a curator and as someone who you know wants people to have a good time and a good experience this is something i have really struggled with with my old border cube because yeah i intentionally have that project as like a nostalgia forward project i want the old border printings of the cards that are in it but some of them have incorrect or very unclear rules text and i have yeah. really struggled with where to draw the line between like okay, this dark ritual says mana source on the type line. And some people are not going to know what that is. They're going to think, like I literally yeah. had a, a player with that, I think it's the Tempest dark ritual, like think it was the thing that they left in play and tap for three mana every turn. And I'm like, that's crazy. It's <laughs> crazy you thought that. I mean, it's not as bad. I, I think it's less confusing than, what is it, the mystical tutor that lets you search for a mana source and people are like, ah, oh, I'll simply go yep. get a land. That's no happened too, is mystical tutor has on it, you can search for instant sorcery or mana source, back when mana sources were a thing. And so I, I have yeah. taken to Sharpie altering some cards when I think I can just sure. make the rules text more clear. And that's always that's even hard to describe because some people sharpie alter cards to change the rules text. And I have to say before the draft, like you may see some sharpies on there. That is just <laughs> to make the cards more clear. I am not changing the rules Unless at all. Unless it's vampiric tutor, and then don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, there's one of the vampiric tutors is just written on a swamp, but that's fine. That's normal. So it's something yeah. I definitely been thinking about a lot because you know in my other cube projects, I've always valued the same thing you're describing, Emma, and it's never been a conflict. Like I've never had another contravailing force that has been pushing me to do something different, to include cards that are otherwise unclear. And now with this yeah. old border cube, it's like, well, I have competing interests here, right? I have the priority of sure. making this a nostalgic experience and playing with the cards I played with as a kid. And I have the priority of making sure that somebody that didn't play Magic as an eight-year-old or is, you know, only 18 years old today can show up and draft this cube and understand what's going on. And it's, yep. uh, it's a space I I'm still trying to navigate. I have that problem with Loxodon Warhammer. So the foil printing I have, it's that old that it's printed before Lifelink was a thing. So there was some questions, especially at KubeCon, about how Loxodon Warhammer works because it had the old wording and not the Lifelink wording. So that is one thing I do need to change in my cube. I need to get an updated version of that card. So it says Lifelink instead of whenever you deal damage, you gain that much life. Because that one has because, been errated to lifelink because not right. all of them are. Like, Armadillo Cloak actually just gains yeah. life whenever the thing deals damage. Right. right, and it's different with the Armadillo Cloak because the owner of Armadillo Cloak gains the life, so you yes. can fun your... You well, can, you can things, kind of weird things can happen. creature. But it is a triggered ability, <laughs> yeah. so you still die to the damage if it puts you below zero. Magic got complicated. Yeah, when did that yeah. happen? <laughs> this very simple <laughs> game, when did it get complicated? But in terms of, like particular treatments that I like I'm similar to you Andy where I like the retro frame 
and I tend to pick up like the more recent retro frame printings. So I picked up a bunch of stuff from Ravnica Remastered because Lightning Helix and Mayhem Devil in Old Border look really, really nice. Yeah. Yeah, that's... I'm notoriously a bit of a hipster, and I, I think the retro <laughs> framing, the like retroactive retro framing has like kind of gone a little bit too far for me. I felt myself not being as excited for the ones in Dominar Remastered personally as I was for the prior like, you know, Time Spiral Remastered retro foils, which I don't know. I just have to I have to push against what's what's common and normal because that's what's, my natural what's old shield. is old old again. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I, I, they definitely seemed very beautiful. I was a little bummed they didn't have the watermarks. That is the one thing that kept me from yeah. grabbing a couple of the guild-specific gold cards in Dominar Remaster was the lack of the guild watermarks. But picky, picky, picky. That shooting star, though. The shooting star is, is great. It is so good. We have a couple of unrelated to cube or magic <laughs> questions from listeners here to, to close things out. Um, the first is, you are a noted Final Fantasy enjoyer. And we got a question mm-hmm. from a listener that wants to know what your favorite Final Fantasy job class is. And maybe you could explain what that yeah, is for what, people what that is, don't know what, what is that, that is. exactly. I'm guessing you two don't play Final Fantasy or have had any experience with it. I actually context? do. I don't as an I don't still, but I went through a phase in like high school where I was really into the okay. like Super Nintendo era and Game Boy Advance era okay, Final good. Fantasy games. So I'm familiar with game with Final Fantasy four and five and stuff. But Anthony, I'm sure is not. I'm, I'm coming from ones, pretty much okay. scratch. He was just like looking at rocks when he was that age. He was more normal. <laughs> it's it's true. Okay, so my favorite job in Final Fantasy is the Black Mage. Which is so for context, I got into Final Fantasy in a similar time frame to you, Andy. I played like one, two, three, four, like the retro pixelated ones and have a very strong nostalgic bond towards them. But the reason I like the Black Mage is just because it's the aesthetic is cool. It's just basically a person with a big hat and you can't see their face and I just find that really adorable. And plus, like, the sound bites always sounded great. And there was just something about Final Fantasy at this point where the spells were just numbered based on their strength. They didn't have, like, a new name. And that just feels really retro and really cool. And, yeah, I just thought it was really cool. And I don't have anything else, really. <laughs> Wizards are neat, I guess. So, so did you play those games when they were initially released? Or, like, I didn't play them when they were initially released. I played them, like, when I got into a retro gaming kick, or what was at the time a retro gaming kick, when I was a little older. Or did you play them when they actually came out? I didn't play them when they came out, but I have a brother who is about 10 years older than me. So he played them gotcha. when they all came out, and he had all the copies. So I would just play his his copies of the game when I was old enough, and I was just like, yeah, this is great. I love the job system. I love, you know, sequencing things so things become really powerful or whatever. So I was very fortunate at that point because not everyone had that, but games like Final Fantasy V and VI are my favorites for that reason. There's a lot of nostalgia there. Yeah, in the early days of emulation, you know, back when games could fall off the back of a truck on the internet, uh, I remember <laughs> being really into those historical games and just be like, oh, I can play any of these whenever I want. I can play ones that were only released in Japan and somebody's actually added a translation file. Like, that's so cool. Did you ever um, yeah. Did you ever play Ogre Battle Tactics? Yes. Oh, that is the I one. I have that, that on the PSP somewhere. Uh, so there's there's a couple actual slight variations. The one that has my heart for, for life is the Super Nintendo version, which I think is March of the yeah. Black Queen. Don't quote me on that. I'll look it up and put it in the show notes. But that was my favorite uh, RPG, weird, like, real-time strategy situation that I was really into at that time. 
I did also pick Tactics Ogre up for the Switch recently because that got like a remaster. So I need to play that at some point. I think I'm going to save that for the the flight. If that's what I remember loving or if that's like a different variation, I got to check because I would definitely play that. Are you excited for the Final Fantasy crossover universes beyond product as a Final Fantasy stan? Yes. I think it's... I think I've been pretty lucky with the Universes Beyond collaborations Wizards have done recently because they did Warhammer. They did Warhammer. I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan, so they did Tales of Middle-earth. And now they're doing Final Fantasy, and it's just like you're hitting like all the things that I really liked you know, as a kid or someone as gr- growing up. So it's just like it's, it'll be really cool to revisit Final Fantasy and see what they do with it. It'll be curious to see if they do any of the retro stuff, like the stuff that you know we played when we were younger... Or are they just going to, you know, focus on, like, the much later Final Fantasies, like your 15s and 16s or whatever? I was surprised with the Doctor Who set. They they dug pretty far deep, right? So I, I wouldn't be surprised yeah, if, if you saw a pretty big variety. I mean, their, their goal is to, to make it accessible to a wide range of people that are enfranchised with these other, other universes. So it makes sense that they would. Yeah, I, th- I admit Doctor Who was one that I was surprised about, even though Doctor Who is from the UK. But apparently the products were really good and the decks were really good. It's just not something... It's The thing about Universes Beyond, that if I'm not familiar with it, I can just ignore it and just move on, which is kind of cool. Like the Fallout one, I'm re- so, so, sort of interested in because I used to play a lot of Fallout growing up as well, like the PC games. So it'll be interesting to see what they do with those. But yeah, Final Fantasy in 2025 is going to be like a big release for me because it's just going to... I'm going to look for the deep cuts. If I don't get to equip Post Malone with a Buster Sword, I'm going to be furious. That is all I want to do. <laughs> all right, and the, the last question here, I don't know why we got this question. Maybe someone will explain it to me. But Yeah, I don't know either. The question is, do you think Vanessa Carlton's hit single, A Thousand Miles, is about Glenn Howerton, and if not, why? I don't know, but it would be hilarious as an Always Sunny episode. You didn't call your close personal friend Vanessa Carlton to ask for the answer to this question? No, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if uh, if that's trending or something or where this question came it from. It is but trending, There, there yeah. you go, listener Alex. There's, uh, there's Emma's answer to your question. <laughs> is there anything else you want to uh, mention? Obviously, we should mention all the things, all the places people can find you. You're very active on Twitter. You're a host of the Herald's Horn podcast, which we'll put all these links in the show notes. You are a writer and editor for TCG Player and also contributor to other websites. What else should we point people towards? So the best place to find me, honestly, is on Twitter. I tend to post a lot of stuff on there. You can find me at Emma D. Partlow. I also have a link tree on my Twitter profile, which has my cube list. It has, you know, uh, all the KubeCon commentary that myself and Andy did. It has my Shuffle Up and Play episode I did on the cube, on my Peasant Cube as well. So um, cool that to see just that, really, by the way. That was awesome. Yeah, that was really fun. That's just a really good hub to check all my content, all my TCG player contents on there, all the Harold Horn episodes on there. Um, it's just easier just to have that bookmarked or just just check it regularly because that's where all the stuff happens because there's just too much going on and just having it in one place is really helpful. And that's also where people can find the link to your GoFundMe to raise the money to put a library of Alexander <laughs> in your cube, right? Yes, yeah, okay, right, great. yeah. So listeners yeah. can go and contribute there. Let's let's make it happen. <laughs> I love that. Alabama Alexander is such a great card. All right, well, on that bombshell, thank you for joining us, Simon. This has been great. Yeah, thanks for having me. And it's getting pretty late there in uh, in old England, so we'll let you go. But uh, that's it. End of this episode of Lucky Paper Radio. 
All of our music is produced by DJ James Nasty. All the magic cards are produced by Wizards of the Coast. This podcast is produced by Anthony, Emma, and I thinking really hard about magic cards and then speaking into microphones about it. Oh, and you can see Emma at MagicCon Chicago, right? If, you, if people are going to be there, they can uh, find you and get you to sign a copy of 3-Bit Inspector. Yeah, I didn't want to say anything because I didn't know how quick this episode was coming out. Oh, it's coming out on Monday. Okay, cool. I, I, I should have asked beforehand, but yes. No, it's good. We're not, we're not that prepared. I wish we were further ahead, but we're not. It's so hard to stay further ahead. Occasionally, we'll get like a week or two ahead and we immediately burn it. It's like, all right, well, we already have one recorded. We got, so. we got the parachute. Uh, I guess pull the parachute. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's so hard.